Week 4 here in 1 John, uh, written by John, wrote uh, three letters that by, by New Testament standards or compared to Paul are short letters because Paul writes, for the most part, really long letters. Uh, John, not so much. Uh, this is the longest of his three letters, 1 John. John is a, a great one to listen to because he has uh, uh, an experience that few had, and that is that he was with Jesus for his entire ministry. And not only that, but of all of those who were close to Jesus, take his 12 disciples, there were three who were really close to Jesus, Peter, James, and John, like his posse. And then there was one who rode shotgun everywhere he went, and that was John. Uh, John was with him all the time. He is called the beloved disciple. He is called the one whom Jesus loved. There was a, a special affection that Jesus had for John that he did not have for all the disciples. Some of you think that's not nice. God can't do that, but he did. He loved, he loved John in a very special way. So uh, John was with there saw him perform miracles, listened to him teach, watched Jesus sweat blood in the garden, um, stood at the foot of the cross boldly while he was crucified, um, received and cared for Jesus' mother, Mary. He was the first one to reach the empty tomb, beating Peter in a close race. He saw the resurrected Jesus. He touched the resurrected Jesus and he watched him ascend into heaven. So I don't know about you. He's going to write a letter? I want to hear it. So he's pouring out his heart in these letters. Um, specifically in this book, he is calling his audience my, my dear children or my beloved. He is talking to a church that he loves and adores. Has great affection for them. And he's writing to them because he's very concerned. False teaching has come in. Okay, Jesus started with his 12 disciples and some others, but this core of 12 disciples whom he charged to go out and to preach the gospel. So Jesus says, what I've given you, you are to take this and give this to others. Give them my word. My word is truth. But at the same time, while that was taking place and while the good news and while the gospel was being proclaimed, you had false teachers and distorted gospels that were also starting to spread within the church. So actually, most of your New Testament letters are written to churches where there is a false or distorted gospel that is being presented. And so the authors are writing to correct them. Because they're seeing or they're hearing about or getting news that, that the church that they love and care about is losing joy. They're losing joy because they've, they're losing sight of the truth. They're losing sight of the gospel. Or he gets news that the church isn't as pure and as holy and as devoted to, to fighting sin as maybe it once was. And the reason is because they are forsaking the gospel and they're buying into news that is not the good news and is not the, the true news. So he's writing to them, and as we've established, as John established in the first four verses, he's going to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus, the gospel. He's going to be proclaiming the good news of Jesus in order to promote fellowship and joy for God's people. That is what he's been doing. 
Now, last week, he established a significant truth. Some believe that verse 5 in 1 John is the foundational doctrinal statement that everything else in the letter is built on. And he says this, God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. God is light, and in Him there is no darkness at all. So remember what he said to his dearly beloved friends is, if you're walking in darkness, if you are in sin, and you're lying about your sin to others and pretending to be in fellowship with God when you're not, if you are lying to yourself about this, he says the truth is you're not in fellowship with God. And you're not really in fellowship with God's people. You might be there. You might be sitting down in the pew. You might be singing the same songs. You might be joining them at community group. But you're actually not in fellowship with them if you're walking in the darkness. And that's what was happening in this church. They were denying that there was sin in their life. Or at the very least, they were denying the extent of the sin that was in their life. Or they were denying the extent of the, the severity of the sin that was in their life. They were pretending that they didn't really need Jesus, maybe, as much as the next guy. And so John is writing to them and saying, let me remind you, and he said this very forcefully last week, let me remind you that there is remaining sin in you as long as you're breathing in this lifetime. And you need to take that sin seriously. And it comes down, you remember to verse 10, which are the, in this affectionate of all letters, are the sharpest words that he writes, where he says, if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. So it's clear then, when we read John's letter, that there is remaining sin in us as Christians. If you have heard a theology, and there are some false theologies, that teach you that you should be or can be without sin before Jesus comes back, that is false. We will constantly in this lifetime be in a state of dependence on the Spirit's work in us to fight and battle and wage war against our sin. So what that means, right, is that if we're going to have community with one another, if we're going to have communion with one another and fellowship with one another, it's not fellowship that's based on sinlessness. In other words, it's not that we're going to have fellowship and it's going to be really close and it's going to be really good and it's going to be really meaningful because we're not going to sin against one another because we don't sin against each other anymore. That's not the truth. The truth is we are going to continue, we're going to continue to sin against one another and our fellowship is not secured by us being sinless or pretending we don't sin our fellowship is secured by God's 
gracious response to our sin. Our fellowship is rooted in the grace that comes through, remember what we read last week? Through Jesus we have been forgiven. And through Jesus we have been cleansed. And so as forgiven ones and cleansed ones, we can have fellowship with one another. So John encouraged us, walk in the light. Walk in the light. Walk according to the truth. And then chapter 1, verse 9, confess your sin. Don't deny your sin. Don't pretend you're not a sinner. Agree with God on this one. And he says, you're messed up. Agree with him. Don't deny that. Agree with him and say, I'm a sinner. But not only that, I have sinned. This is how I've sinned. We all know enough to say I'm a sinner. It's another thing entirely to break it down and say this is how I sin. So John's encouragement says we can have fellowship for your joy. Walk in the light. Confess your sin because He has forgiven us. He has cleansed us. So let's move forward now. Chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. There, there maybe shouldn't even be a chapter division here because it really just flows from what we read last week. And, and, and you may have heard it in my prayer. There, there's, there's, there's a truth that is in verse 2 that is the most important truth in your Bible. But, but we can say that because it is at the core of the Gospel. So we're, we're going to read today and study today the, what I would say is the most important truth in God's revealed Word. It is the most relevant truth to your life. But... But there is something else that we have to get, that we have to understand first, or that truth will just be sort of bland. You ever just eaten something and it's just kind of, okay, I guess it's all right. It's, it's fuel for my body, but I'm not really feeling anything here. The, the second truth that we're going to get to, it will just kind of taste bland to you and it won't really hit home. It needs to be set up the way John has been setting it up for these first 11 verses, it needs to be set up in order for us to feel that impact. So, as you would expect, before he gets to grace, he's going to re-emphasize the seriousness of sin. Chapter 2, verse 1, my little children, right, it's how he's talking to them, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. He does this throughout his whole letter. He says, you're responsible to fight sin. It is your duty not to sin. But you're forgiven of your sin. But don't forget that you must not sin. But when you do sin, don't forget there is grace, but don't let that be a lice. And he keeps, he keeps reminding us of both sides of this coin. And so what he's emphasizing is here, just imagine John saying, don't think that everything I've said so far about the reality of remaining sin and the forgiveness and the cleansing that we have through Jesus, don't think that that then is a license for you to sin. 
And so he reminds them of a purpose of his book. Not only confess your sin, like he said in verse 9 of chapter 1, but now he says, I am writing this so that you may not sin. Confess your sin is one thing. He's saying forsake your sin. Abandon your sin. Sin is, as Isaiah 53 describes it, going your own way. Not the way God would have you go. Sin is rebellion. Sin is going rogue. Sin is insubordination against God. God is the authority. God is the creator. And we're, as the Puritans called us, creatures. You're just a creature. But God, He's the creator. And so you are infinitely responsible to Him. He made you. He owns you. What He's called you to do, you are obligated to obey Him. And when we don't, and when we go our own way, we fall into sin. And John says, one of the purposes of my book, okay? I am writing this that you may not sin. Take sin seriously, which we really need to hear. John is saying, take sin seriously. Listen to it throughout his letter. Look at 1 John chapter 3, if you have your Bible. Verse 8. 1 John 3.8. Listen to these statements he makes about sin. Whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Or verse 5 of chapter 3 says Jesus appeared to take away sins. So according to 1 John 3.8, if you keep on sinning, you may be of Satan, not of God. Not only that, but in regards to your sin, it says in verse 5 of chapter 3, Jesus came, why? To take away your sin. And you're going to keep on sinning, John is saying? Jesus came to take away your sin. When you sin, you insult the suffering of Jesus. It is like spitting on the cross. If you can imagine that. That's how forcefully John writes. Or verse 6 of chapter 3. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. I mean, how many of you have read 1 John when you first became a Christian? You're like, I guess I'm not a Christian. A lot of Christians have that experience because you, you read these statements that he makes. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. Uh, uh, I sinned while I was reading that verse. I mean, these are big statements. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. John says, if you keep on sinning, you just may be deluded. Your salvation may just be a sham. 
It may be a delusion. It may be something in your imagination. You may not actually be saved, John is saying, if you, whatever he means by, keep on sinning. Yikes. 1 John chapter 2, 3 through 6. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. It doesn't say, and by this we know that we have come to know Him. We get goosebumps when we sing worship songs. It doesn't say anything feelings-oriented, anything subjective. It's very objective. This is how you know you've come to know Jesus. You obey His commandments. Wow! Amen. Really? Really? Listen to this. Whoever says, I know Him, but does not keep His commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His Word in him, truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in Him. Whoever says He abides in Him ought to walk in the same way in which He walked. In other words, if you keep on sinning, whatever John means by that, your assurance is jeopardized. Right? The, the assurance of knowing I am in Christ. The only thing you have hope in. That is jeopardized if we keep on sinning. Now, but we're taught things like, no, your assurance of your salvation has nothing to do with your current obedience of God. Okay, we take truths out of context and we say things like, your assurance is, is rooted in what Jesus did on the cross. Now that is a true statement, but if we say that to mean that it doesn't matter what your life looks like now, be assured because Jesus did something, you may just prove by your sinful life that the something that Jesus did was not for you. That's what he's getting at. That's how serious He wants us to take sin. Our, our assurance that we have in Christ is not something that should be forever triggered in our life because of some one-time event that we had. Right? Some people just think, I'm good, I'm assured because I went forward in 7th grade. I remember it was a junior high camp. They were playing big, big house again. And I went forward, and I was crying, and all my friends were there, and I said this prayer. And I remember I did that. And I did it the year before, and the year after, and the year after. But I remember doing that. Or I got baptized. Or I was in this really good church. I used to be really good. I used to be best friends with a pastor. Whatever it is. We have these things that we hold on to. And John doesn't mention any of those. We even have a, a theological category today that is not an actual category called carnal Christians. Have you, have you guys heard that one? God has not. He has not heard of a carnal Christian. The first time he heard that in a sermon, God was like, really? What is that exactly? We have these cat a carnal Christian. We say a carnal Christian is be assured you're saved, you're secure, 
All the blessings are yours. You have eternity in heaven to look forward to. Be happy. Feel secure. But you're just not that kind of Christian who sees Jesus as your Lord yet. That's what it is. There's a huge controversy decades ago. These two categories of Christians. What John is saying is that, that how we live is either evidence of or evidence against our salvation. That's how serious, that's how serious John takes it. So serious that he comes back to it in the middle of what he's saying about God's grace and says, let me be clear why I'm writing to you. One of my purposes here is that you may not sin. So he's affirmed the existence of remaining sin in the believer. He said, don't deny it. Don't lie about it. He has affirmed that God forgives and cleanses through Jesus, but lest his readers see this as a license to sin or we hear all that grace talk as a license to sin, he has ordered his readers not to take sin lightly. But then I love the way John writes the next word. But if anyone does sin... When you first read, they're like, John, what do you do? You just ruined it. You had us so serious about sin. But now, you're going to give us, we may think, some kind of an out. I mean, it more literally says, right, not but if anyone does sin, but when you do sin. Because I'm writing this so that you may not sin, but when you do, but when you do sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the first thing, all in verse 1, the first thing he says is, is in regards to your sin, stop. That's his long counseling session with us. We sit down, we talk about our sin and why we do it and the roots and we've been you know introspective for like three weeks and filled out forms and and now we're waiting for the apostle john to speak into our life and he looks across the table and says stop that's the first part of verse one but then he says because he knows us his beloved he says beloved you're going to sin When you do sin, don't despair. When you do sin, and you will, don't despair. Now here's the thing. You don't get to have that verse until you get the first part. That's why he said that first. You don't get to just jump to the, the peace to keep you out of despair if you're not taking your sin seriously. You, you, we don't get to skip that. If, if you don't think that you're that sinful, then this verse doesn't apply to you. 
You don't get to keep that for yourself. You don't get to put that on a bumper sticker. You don't get to hang that on your door. You can't have that on a t-shirt. It can't be your memory verse. You don't get that one unless you know how serious the sin, unless you know that you are a total moral failure. I am, you are total moral failures. When it comes to right and wrong, apart from God, we are all failures. If we don't see anything between us and, and our relationship with God, if we don't see why we need an, an advocate, if we don't see why we need a go-between, and, and, and what do you mean? God is, God is love, and, and He loves me, and thinks I'm cute, and I should be able to, to pray to Him, and I can go to Him, and I have just free access, and, and I don't even need... If you think that, then you don't get to have this verse. We can't take sin Lightly, this, this verse is only for those who know and feel they are not worthy of fellowship with God. Because that would, I'm not worthy of fellowship with God. I don't deserve fellowship with God. I don't deserve these good blessings. And so the gospel comes in and says, don't despair. But you only get that don't despair if you get the seriousness, the extent, and the severity of that sin. If you look within and you say, it's really not that bad. My pastor is totally dramatic when it comes to this. May we laugh? Some of you believe that. We, we as a culture just... Our propensity is to think that we're not that bad. We're not really that sinful. You hear this when you, you, you watch the news and something terrible has happened in a neighborhood somewhere. And who do they interview? They interview the neighbors. They interview those who lived on the left and those who lived on the right and those who lived across the street. And what do they always say? I... I am shocked. Right? You, you never have somebody stand up and say, I totally knew this was going to happen. I was just waiting for them to find the bodies. Nobody ever says that. Everybody is always shocked. Everybody is always surprised. I just didn't think they were capable. But what are people saying when they say that? I think maybe they're saying, they're, they're like me. That's my neighbor. I mean, I'm like them. And sometimes you watch and you see the interview and you're like, yeah, you're, no, you're actually... <laughs> way to get a 20 on that guy. But we look and we, we, we say, no, no, this person's like, like me and I'm not a monster and, and I, would, I would never do that. And so what's happening is I'm, I'm underestimating my own propensity. I'm underestimating my sinfulness. Oh, th th those are monsters. The truth is, right, and, and theologians have done a great job in our history of pulling this out of Scripture and making it a reality for us. And I'll, I'll talk about Charles Spurgeon in just a minute, but the truth is, is that the, the seed or the, the root or the kindling of every possible horrible sin that has ever been committed, the seed for that sin, the root of that sin, the kindling for that sin, lies in your sinful nature. 
It's there. And it is only the grace of God that restrains or keeps you from actualizing your potential. It's there. Charles Spurgeon described it as a, our wicked hearts as an acorn. Right, you, you, you can take an acorn and you can see, and, and he would say that in every acorn is an ocean of wood. And this is what he meant by that. In an acorn, if it is put in the right soil and it is nurtured and it is watered, in that acorn is a huge acorn tree. Everything, that nothing gets put in other than just the nourishment and the soil and the sunlight and the water. Everything that is necessary for this beautiful tree is inside this acorn. And all the wood that can be harvested from that tree. But then that tree will also yield a thousand acorns. And in each of those acorns is another tree which will yield another thousand acorns. You see the point that he's getting at when he says that our heart is like this. In, in an acorn, there's this little tiny thing. You have an ocean of wood. There could be enough wood that could come from this acorn where you could fill an ocean with it. So true, truly is our sinful propensity apart from God and apart from His grace and apart from His mercy. So if we are in the, the category of people who we have no sense of the depth of our sin, then the first part of verse 1 is for you. But then there's some of us who have an overwhelming sense. I, I mean, we can even go sinfully in the opposite direction, where it's crushing, it's debilitating. The second part of verse 1 is for you. See, John is writing to you. There are some who are not taking sin seriously enough. Let me remind you, my little children, I am writing this that you may not sin. But if you do sin, those of you who are under this weight, who know, who acknowledge, who understand the reality of sin in your life, do not despair. We have an advocate, Jesus Christ the righteous. So if that acorn falls on the pavement, there's no tree. But if that acorn falls in the right soil, some of you, most of you, by God's grace, your acorn has fallen on the pavement. But if you were put in a place where the evil in you was fertilized and nurtured, and you grew up in a different place or a different time with different things around you, and there was less of God's grace, and there was less of His restraint, the picture would be completely different. And so John says, take your sin seriously. We need both truths. When you're in sin, 
We need to understand the offense of your sin to God. We must understand that lest we continue on in our sin. And we need to understand the grace of the gospel lest we despair. John Newton said, You never learn you are a sinner by being told, but by being shown. Those of you who know how important it is that we have a verse like verse 2, by God's grace, haven't you been shown your own sin? I could stand here until I'm blue in the face and say, you're a sinner and it's bad. You're like an acorn. <laughs> and it's just like, I didn't understand that at all. I'm a good person. You don't learn that by being told. We learn that by being shown. Some of you, there will come a point in your life and you will remember this truth. Because you will be shown just how dark it can be. For those of you that have been shown that, you never want to go back. And you cling to verse 2. Blaise Pascal, named my son after him said, certainly nothing offends us so rudely as this doctrine of original sin. That's the first part of the quote. Is there anything more offensive? No. They don't talk about this doctrine on glee or something. It's not popular. We just don't hear it. Certainly nothing offends us so rudely as this doctrine of original sin. Yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. He says this is, this is just incomprehensible how sinful and how wicked we actually are apart from Christ. But if you don't know that and believe that and get that, you just won't understand yourself. It's essential to you even comprehending who you are. So now, he, he, he comes in and he says this, I'm writing this, just taking sin so seriously, and, and knowing that now there are probably some who are suffering from this right, morbid introspection, which is where this can go for many of us, he says, but when you do sin, here's the truth, we have an advocate. Who's the advocate? He's a good one. He's a keeper. Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is our advocate. He's our parakletos, which is the same thing that's used to describe the Holy Spirit. Our comforter. The one who, who stands in place. The one who, who, who teaches and encourages and counsels. The Holy Spirit is the paraclete of Jesus here to speak on behalf of Jesus to us. And our paraclete in heaven to God the Father speaking on our behalf is Jesus. He sends us His Holy Spirit to mediate His presence while He's gone. And He goes and stands at the right hand of the Father. And while the accuser Satan is there, He's the advocate who stands between Satan and God, if you will, and pleads His case 
Jesus Christ, the righteous, as our advocate. It literally means that he is our legal representative. He's like our legal representative before God the Father. He wins, we win. He loses, we lose. But he wins. Always. But he is our representative. He's like our lawyer. He has the power of attorney, to use a phrase we have today. Jesus has the power of attorney for us in the courts of heaven before God. He has the power of attorney. So, so he gets the win, we get the win. What he says is what we say. He is there standing in our place, representing us just like an attorney has the power to do that before a judge on behalf of whoever he represents. That's who Jesus is when it says that he is our advocate standing in our place. He is literally before God as the accusations come and he is pleading his case. So what's his case? It's not you. And that's very different from our legal system. Right, where the Lord, you know, you should really, you should really let this guy, I know this guy's terrible. I know you should let him off because I'm a good guy. That's ridiculous. No judge is going to hear that. And yet, the case that Jesus Christ makes, he's not pleading our case. He's not saying, no, 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 look, look how Look how good they are, or, or look how much they've grown. You remember him, God, three years ago? He's come a long way. He planted a church. He's a pastor now. He doesn't say he doesn't. He doesn't even appeal to mercy at that point. Say, God, just show them mercy. Just overlook this one. What's the case that he makes? It's the case for, we're going to see it in the next verse, for justice. Jesus is the case. He's the case. He's not pleading, for, not pleading our case. There's nothing good in us. There's nothing innocent in us. He is standing there as our advocate. What's the name John gives him here? Jesus Christ the righteous. Not on behalf of us, the righteous. No, only righteous in him, who is the righteous one? He is our advocate in our place. And now verse 2 is the ground of how Jesus can be our advocate. Okay, so he's our legal representative. He's the one who is pleading our case before God. What gives Jesus the ability, the right to do that the whole ground for that and everything John has said, here's verse 2. This is why Jesus is our advocate. He is the propitiation for our sins. That is why John is saying, Jesus is our advocate because he is the propitiation. Propitiation means the removal of the wrath of God against sinners through Jesus Christ. That's this propitiation. 
the removal of the wrath of God against sinners through the death of Jesus. The greatest problem that we have today is not the economy. I mean, it's bad, from what I understand. I don't really watch the news because it's depressing, but I've heard that it's a real bummer right now. The biggest problem that we face is not politics. I get so sick. I could be careful. I don't want to offend buddy. Get tired of looking to politics as our Savior. I mean, we can elect Billy Graham as president, and it's probably still not going to go that great. The greatest problem facing us is not carnal Christianity. The greatest problem facing us is not these these wars in the Middle East, the, the greatest problem facing us is the wrath of God upon us as a human race. I mean, think about that. That minimizes every little problem that we have. So God has created us, God has made us, God has holds everything together in this cute little world. And here we have problems that on this world are really big problems and really significant problems and, and they, they feel heavy and they are by world standards. But the one who is over all and according to Colossians is in all and through all is angry. The, the one who is over all and who will determine the days of your life and will determine then where you spend eternity, whether or not He unleashes mercy or wrath on you, the one who decides that is very angry with the world because of sin. I mean, there is a holy rage in God against sin. That's why John is saying, take this seriously. This is not funny. This is not a joke. Don't sweep it under the carpet. Don't lock it up. Confess it. Walk in the light. Stop doing it. Stop it, says. Because the greatest problem that we face is the wrath of God. The solution for the greatest problem we face is Jesus is our propitiation. The solution is 1 John chapter 2, verse 2. Jesus died to remove, to remove the wrath of God against sinners. Romans 3.25. I'm sorry, John 3.36 first. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You trust Jesus. You love Jesus. You have eternal life. You don't trust Jesus. You don't love Jesus. Right now, God's wrath is upon you. 
Romans 3.25, talking about Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. In other words, when, when Jesus was dying on the cross, one of the things that was taking place is that God was unleashing His the, the full extent of His wrath against sin on His Son Jesus who took our sin in our place. And, and, and it says that God had overlooked former sins for millenniums, for a long time before Jesus. And He had stored up wrath and then in His justice He poured out this wrath on His willing Son Jesus. And then later in this letter, we're going to read 1 John 4.10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Now that's really important because we don't want to think that, okay, so Jesus is our advocate, so God the Father is like this good cop, bad cop thing, and, and God the Father is the bad cop, and He just is really out to get us, and He really is, is, is mean and angry and, and wants to destroy us, and Jesus just keeps saying, oh, can you just overlook this one and forget about this one? No, it is God the Father who sent His Son Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins. It is, it is this divine conspiracy. How do we love these people and save these people and yet do something about their sin and punish it? And this is God's plan. How do we do that? Father, Son, Holy Spirit, Trinitarian God. How do we love them and welcome them and adopt them as our children when they have offended us so grievously? we will go down and become one of them. And we will bear the weight of their sin and suffer the punishment in their place is the Gospel. Jesus is our propitiation. He is the sacrifice in our place that absorbed the wrath of God so that you may not. Deuteronomy 27.26 Cursed be anyone who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. That means we're all cursed. But then Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So it's God's love that satisfies His own demand for justice. Only in the Gospel. This is only Christianity. This is no other religion. God satisfies His own demands for justice. Therefore, as Jesus is our advocate in heaven, He doesn't plead our case. 
He, he speaks truth on our behalf by every time we sin, appealing again to his propitiatory death on the cross. More sin, more sin, more sin, more sin, more sin, more sin, more sin. Punished, 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 punished. Can't overlook, can't overlook, must be dealt with, must be dealt with. So severe, so offensive, dealt with, dealt with, dealt with, dealt with. It is finished. Jesus cried out on the cross. The sins of my people have been atoned for. Now we're in the church age where the Holy Spirit's just telling everybody about what He did. Opening our eyes to it. Opening our hearts that we may see and know and grasp and understand what Jesus has done. And receive Him and trust Him and love Him. Why would we not receive Him, trust Him, love Him? So those who received Him to those who call on His name, they shall be called the children of God. John chapter 1 tells us. So we have an accuser, but we have an advocate. So we do not, we do not as Christians, we must take our sin seriously, but we do not despair. In fact, we can get so despondent that we are sinning. We're sinning. Like our sin is too big or something. Instead of not despairing because we can lock our focus and heart into 1 John 2, 2 and verse 1 and be reminded that I have an advocate. My advocate is Jesus Christ, the righteous. And He's not up in heaven and just saying, oh, just be merciful, be merciful, be merciful. No, the, the cry is justice, justice, justice. Punish, punish, punish. But Jesus, our advocate, is the one who gets punished in our place. And maybe practically for some of us, when we begin to feel this weight or when we do something or are doing something or are repeat offenders in some way and we become overwhelmed with guilt beyond a good guilt that turns us to repentance but now a guilt that has the gospel just covered and veiled and we sink into despair and despondency we need to understand this truth. When we sink into despair, we start thinking, I don't deserve this. I shouldn't have these things. I can't have that. I'm not good enough. Many of those true statements but not leading us to the right place. I should be punished for what I've done. You're thinking that God has just been merciful with you. 
you're thinking that he has just sort of overlooked the sin that you've done. But actually, when you are feeling the guilt and you're feeling with the, the, the weight of this sin, you need to remember that he has dealt with that sin furiously. And he dealt with it on the cross. He did not just overlook it. When somebody just overlooks something, like a friend just overlooks something, I mean, you know this, you just keep feeling guilty about it. And some of you, we're sick, right? We start to feel better if we've done something really cruel to somebody, if there's kind of like a price we have to pay. Or we want to pay a price. Let me take you to lunch. Let me give you $100. Let me, you know, let me just keep saying sorry a thousand times. Because we just feel like, no, you're just being too nice. You're being too kind. And I feel like I need to be punished. I should suffer or something like that. We do that with God. And so we wallow and get despaired and we get in this guilt thing where we're not looking to the gospel. You need to remember, no, God has punished your sin. He has dealt with your sin. He has unleashed the, 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 the extent of His fury and rage against your sin. But He did that and poured it out on Jesus in your place. So now if we grasp that, it shifts from despair to delight in Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. That doesn't even fit. Thank you, Jesus, for what you have done that my sin has been punished in my place. And then the last part of verse 2. And not for ours only. He's not the propitiation for our sins only, but also for the sins of of the whole world, which is very good for our individualistic, it's all about me culture to hear. Jesus loves you. He doesn't just love you. Jesus died for you. He didn't just die for you. It's extensive you're not the only one saved. We're not the only ones saved. We're not the only ones who are right in Christ. We're not the only ones who need to hear about Jesus because He has died for many. Mark chapter 10, verse 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for Veritas Church. Congratulations. Ding, ding. No. For many. John 11.52 And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Or Jesus says in chapter 10 of John 15 and 16, Just as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep and I have other sheep that are not of this fold, I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice so there will be one flock and one shepherd. We need to hear that there are other sheep. There are other sheep today, right now, in this world. And there are sheep in other times before us and ahead of us. There are many whom Jesus has suffered and died for. Revelation 5.9 And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain. And by your blood you ransomed people for God from every Every tribe and language and people and nation. This should inspire us. It, it, it should motivate us to not 
be so inwardly focused, but to be globally focused even. To desire to see the gospel go to all nations, to go throughout the world, because Jesus didn't just come to die for America. He's the propitiation for our sin, but not only our sins, the sins for the whole world. 1 John 4.14, And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Last one, 1 John 5.19, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. But He has come to give His life as a ransom for many. Bottom line, in conclusion, if you are not a Christian, you have no advocate in heaven. If you are not a Christian, you have no advocate in heaven. There is no one pleading your case. There is no one standing in your place. God's position toward you is wrath. you're a Christian. You have an advocate at the right hand of God the Father who has lived the life that you should live, who has died the death that you should die in your place, has absorbed all the wrath of God for anything and everything you have ever done, thought, or been. All of it. And you now in Christ stand in Jesus Christ the righteous. You stand righteous before a holy God who has removed your sins from you. How far? As far as the east is from the west. Just gone. If you're not a believer, turn to Christ. I mean, you have many blessings. God has blessed you. He gives you rain. He gives you sunshine. He gives you good food to eat. He gives you air conditioning. But you have no justification before God. You have no sanctification. You have no advocacy. You are on your own before a holy God. So may us as believers grow in gratitude for the God we serve. And for those of us who are not believers, may we, as Isaiah calls us, turn to Him that we may be saved. We'll take communion together in just a minute. We have leaders up here who are going to want to serve you. So when you're ready, come forward and we'll give you bread and give you juice. We ask you would hold on to those. We're going to take them together as a family because it is a, it is a family meal. It's a meal we share together as the body of Christ, remembering what He has done for us. So if you're not a Christian yet, you don't get the meal. You've got to wait. When you've trusted Jesus, when you've been brought into His church, then this meal is for you. If you are not a part of a, of a church, you call yourself a Christian, but you just kind of uh, 
are uh, a, a rogue um, spy type Christian floating in and out and hopping from one church to another and you really have no church family that you're committed to loving and serving, then you also don't get to have this meal. It's a family meal for the body of Christ. So find a family, find a church, commit. You're visiting and you're from there, you're welcome to share this meal with us. If you're committed, here, let's eat and drink together. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for what we're about to remember. Father in heaven, thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to die in our place, to absorb all your wrath so that the dominion, the power of sin could be removed, the the sting of death could be removed so that we could have real fellowship, communion with you. But God, thank you for what you've done. We ask that you would affect our hearts even now. Cause us to incline us to remember these things appropriately. To celebrate. To confess sin. To treat this time honorably for your namesake. As your people, we love you. We give you all praise. We give you all honor. All glory. We pray these things in the great name of your Son, who is Jesus the Christ. Amen. Bah.